a preacher in Richland Hills, Texas, that's a suburb of Fort Worth, I believe, was telling of a time when they were putting their scriptures up on the screen like we do. Uh, we put our scriptures up there whenever we're going through them during the sermon. And, and most churches do the same thing, and they were doing that for some time. But they were going through a sermon series on 1 John, and they decided not to put any scriptures up on the screen during the entire series, and rather they encouraged their attenders to bring their physical Bibles and open up their Bibles during the sermons and to follow along throughout that series. About halfway through the series of 1 John, one mother emailed Rick Ashley, the preacher, and told him what happened to his, her seven-year-old daughter, Emma Kate. She went to another church's Sunday night program with a friend, and Emma brought her Bible. And on the way to that program, her friend's mother said, Emma, I'm so proud of you for bringing your Bible. And she said, yeah, we use Bibles now at church, at, <laughs> at our church. And, and the mother said, well, we use Bibles at our church too, Emma. And Emma said, yeah, but we haven't been. We just started last week. So... <laughs> Whether you brought your physical Bible or not, we're going to have the scriptures up on the screen. You can use your uh, smartphone Bible or your physical Bible, whatever that may be. Every week, we open up the Word of God here. And so today, it is Mark chapter 8. It is medicine to our heart to open up our Bibles. Probably the oldest book, isn't it? Probably the oldest book in the world. I was reading some stories about some older people. One lady turned 104 years old, and someone asked her, what is the best part about turning 104? And she said, no peer pressure. <laughs> One man said, I've sure gotten old. I've had two bypass surgeries, a hip replacement, two knees, prostate cancer, and diabetes. I'm half blind. I can't hear anything quieter than a jet engine. And I take 40 different medications that make me dizzy, winded, and subject to blackouts. I have bouts with dementia, poor circulation, can hardly feel my hands and feet anymore. I can't remember if I'm 85 or 92, but thank God I still have my driver's license. <laughs> and that is, I think that's happening a lot. So anyway, sometimes we feel that way about our Bible. We lose control the rest of our life, but thank God we still have our Bibles. Amen? We still have it with us. And so Mark chapter 8, a little bit of a deja vu today for several reasons. We're going to be talking about the feeding of the 4,000 again. We're going to go a little bit more in depth, a little bit deeper into the story, down to verse 21. But some of you may remember, wasn't it just a couple chapters ago that Jesus fed the 5,000 men, may have been 20, 25,000 people. And there are some similarities, actually striking similarities between the two stories. In Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 7, you see up here on the screen, both stories here in Mark 6 and Mark 8, the two different events, start with the feeding of a multitude, then Jesus crosses a sea, then there's a conflict with the Pharisees, and then there's a conversation about bread. And I've got to say, in a limited small book like Mark, I'm surprised he put this story in there. Why do you need to double up on a story such as this? And then it hit me, maybe there's something essential to our faith in this story, spiritually shaping, life-altering, and may the Holy Spirit touch our heads, our hearts, and our hands in it. So beginning with verse 1, during those days... Another large crowd gathered, since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. This is the only spot in Scripture where Jesus says about himself, I have compassion. Every other time, it's everybody else saying it. He has compassion. This time, it's I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have a long distance. And we had an entire message a couple weeks ago about compassion. And this church has shown 
a lot of compassion. Whenever we brought out the angel tree, this church jumped on it and covered every single one of them. And we want to say thank you, and we want to say good job. Another thing that we have done just in the last couple weeks since that message a couple weeks ago, we walked into here a couple weeks ago and asked the administration here at Kids Are Kids, give us the name of a family who's hurting, who's down and out right now, who doesn't have much during this Christmas season, and we want to bless them. And so in the next couple weeks, uh, we've gotten the name of the family, and because of you and your offerings, we're going to get a chance to bless a family who's down and out, uh, somebody who attends here at Kids Are Kids. Isn't that fun? That's just fun. And on January 11th, uh, we decide on January 11th, that's the second Saturday of, of January, we're going to bless the neighborhoods around here, and we're going to have a free car wash out here in the front of the parking lot here at Kids Are Kids. And we're going to go into the communities and say, we don't want anything from you. We want to give something to you. We want to be a blessing and a light and salt and light into these communities. And the point is, Jesus had compassion, and his church should emulate the compassion of Jesus. Amen? If the church is anything... We should be givers and not takers. God's people should be showing the same kind of compassion that Jesus showed. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave thanks to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. Then key line, the people ate and were what? Satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. His goodness and his provision doesn't just meet our needs, it exceeds our needs. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't, his grace, his mercy, his love, it doesn't just meet us where we're at. It exceeds what we ever possibly think he could do. Now, there may come a point in time, and I mean, we may, you may be in a situation right now where you don't feel that way, you don't see that, you're wondering where God is, but I have this sneaking suspicion there's going to come a day when we're standing before God, and I don't know how it works. He puts in a, a VHS tape or something and, and, and does a playback of your life. And he says, you see that spot where you didn't think I was there? You see that spot where you didn't think I was blessing you? You see that spot where you didn't have a clue what was going on? And we're going to be able to look back and he's going to say, see what I was doing? See how I was helping? See how I was healing? And we're going to realize in that moment when we look back, you weren't just meeting our needs, God. You were exceeding everything we could possibly imagine. You were exceeding our needs. I believe he does that. And by the way, this story is mainly about bread. As good as Italian restaurants are at serving us bread. Can someone say amen? <laughs> Jesus does bread well as well. Have you ever noticed this? Jesus was born in what town? All right, we are a church. Good. Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. He was born in a town called House uh, bread. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that we just took, his body is represented by bread. Out of all the things he could have represented his body with, he represented it with bread. Whenever he gives us the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he says, give us this day our daily bread. I would have said, give us this day our daily bacon, and it would have changed the whole course of life. But he says, he used bread there. In Luke 14, he says, blessed is he, when he's talking about heaven, the one piece of food, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Bread is mentioned 492 times in our Bible. He calls himself the bread 
of life. In John chapter 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus does bread. And then in verse 10 of Mark chapter 8, it says, He got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Bill Ingvall. He does these jokes called, Here's Your Sign. Has anybody seen the Here's Your Sign? I really messed up. It was too late in the ballgame. I should have entitled this message, Here's Your Sign. That's that's what I should have, and then something would have been good about the message then. But... Don't, don't say, you know. But there, I think Jesus right here wanted to pull out a, here's your sign. He just fed 4,000. They said, give me a sign. <laughs> here's your sign. And, and, and they're always wanting more. The Pharisees were never, ever satisfied. Never mind he's in his third year of ministry. Never mind he's healed the blind. Never mind he's brought life to the death. Never mind he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Never mind he's walked on water. Never mind he calmed a storm. Never mind he turned water into wine. Never mind he's healed thousands of people by this third year of ministry. And the Pharisees say, show me a sign. And Jesus sighs and says, are you kidding me? That's not in the Greek, but you know, are you kidding me? You want another sign. Here's what they're doing, church. This is critical. They're trying to take faith out of the equation. They want to have to be able to put their hands on it and their eyes to see it before they believe it. They're taking faith out of the equation. And by the way, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The righteous shall live by faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. The disciples asked Jesus in Luke 17, verse 5, increase our faith. The Pharisees here were saying the opposite. Decrease our faith. I'm not going to believe unless you show me. I'm not going to put my faith in you unless you show me. I'm going to make the rules here, Jesus. I am going to give the litmus test. I'm going to set the standards. Let's see if you can do what I have commanded of you. And then maybe I'll believe. Now, this is how it comes to fruition in the modern vernacular. You say, that's crazy. The Pharisees are crazy. Well, before we point a finger at them, let's look at ourselves for a second. Here's how it comes out today. I can't believe in God because he didn't stop that terrorist attack. I won't believe in a God who allows that to happen. I won't believe in a God who allows this or that. I won't believe in a God who allows child abuse to happen in the world. I won't believe in God if... There can't be a God if, this is ha- if they're suffering. Have you ever heard that stuff? Or we put it a little bit differently. We change it to the other side. If God, if you do this, if you give me a pay raise, then I'll start going to church. <laughs> Who's setting the standard there? God or you? God, if you do this, if you sell my house, if you sell my car, if you get me a new job, if you get me a Christian girlfriend, if you get me married, if you heal this, if you do that, then, then I'll follow you, then I'll be devoted, then I'll put something in the, uh, in the offering basket. We are telling God that we're God, not him. Show me a sign. Friends, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. 
And that's a, by the way, that's a popular camp. These are popular statements that I quite frankly hear. I don't know if I hear it every week, but I hear it quite often. How many of you have heard that kind of stuff? Or, and I'm not going to ask how many of you have said that kind of stuff. You know what, God? I don't think you're there unless you do this. We're setting the standard. We're setting the litmus test, and we're saying, you're no longer God. I am God. I set the rules here. And then Jesus said, you know what? No sign for you. I don't know if he said it like the soup Nazi in Seinfeld. No sign for you. But if he would have, that would have been really cool. But this is a popular camp. here's, Here's what I call this camp. It's right here. I'll trust you if. I'll believe in you if. I'll surrender if. I'll go to church if. I'll be devoted if. I'll sacrifice if. Because I'm not sure you're trustworthy enough. So prove to me you are, and then I'll trust you. Now, let me just say this. If Jesus creating the world in six days isn't enough, if Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth isn't enough, if Jesus walking like a lamb to the slaughter to the cross isn't enough, if the empty grave isn't enough, if him starting the church isn't enough, if him giving us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit isn't enough, then nothing will ever be enough. If that's not enough of a sign, then you'll never have enough. Because here's the truth. He is the sign. We're looking for things. that They're looking for something. Jesus, no, Jesus is standing there saying, I am the sign. (laughs) I am he. How many times did he say, I am? Eight times in the book of John, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am, I am, I am. He says, I am the sign. You're looking at the sign. And, And what's amazing about this passage is he's talking to the Pharisees who proclaim that they have been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years, for hundreds of years. They're proclaiming that they've been waiting for the Messiah and he's standing right in front of them and they missed it. And many people miss it today. Then he goes on in verse 14, these disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, some of your translations say, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Yeast or leaven, pretty similar in nature. Uh, Leaven would probably be more accurate in this particular passage, but here's what the Jews connected leaven with. They connected it with sin. So a little bit of leaven can corrupt an entire loaf of bread, right? For those of you who are cooks or bakers or whatever, fryers, grillers, something, I don't know, whatever this bread stuff is. So what they would do is they would um, put together dough, and before they put it in the oven, they would take a pinch of the dough off and set it aside, and they would save, before they put that in the oven, they would save this little pinch of dough because it had leaven in it, and they would put it in the next the next batch. Why? Because that little bit of leaven would spread throughout the entire batch. And then they would just keep doing that. But the danger of that is over time, that can get poisonous. Over time, that gets toxic. And what Jesus is saying, watch out for the toxicity, watch out for the poisonous of sin, the sin of the Pharisees and the sin of Herod. Now, he mentions two people, Pharisees and Herod, but those are opposites. They're not the same. Those are two different sins, right? The Pharisees were openly arrogant, openly religious, openly putting stuff on their Instagram, always putting a verse, uh, some cute spiritual thing on their Instagram every day, always looking down. I don't mean if you do that, that's fine. But it kind of gets on my nerves. But 
<laughs> anyway, but always looking down, always quoting another Bible verse, always pointing their finger, always saying you're not good enough. They were the religious elite. They were, the, they were better than everybody else. They were outwardly, externally, moralistic, perfect. And Jesus says, watch out for that because inwardly they are whitewashed tombs. Inwardly, they are dead. Inwardly, there is no relationship with God. And then you have the sin of Herod, which seems to be the opposite because externally, he, he flaunted in his sin. He was openly public about his sexual sin with the different women that he was at. He was celebrating sin. He was endorsing sin. He was saying, if, he was the first to say, if it feels good, do it. And so you have these two out here, externally perfect, externally sinful. And he says, watch out for the leaven in both of those because I know they look different, but they're actually the same. The underlying root is sin, and that's poisonous. It's poisonous. One side note about leaven, leaven is hidden. We only see the result of leaven. You never see the leaven. Sin works the same way. Sin works in secret, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that? We see the results of sin. We see the pain of sin. We see the destruction of sin, but sin works in secret. It's hidden. John Owen, uh, I don't know, died 250 years ago, an old preacher. He said, Sin is at its deadliest when it, 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 when it is at its quietest. Isn't that true? It's at its deadliest when it's at its quietest. And this is for me as much as anyone, because it's real easy to say, you know, I'm living a good life. I'm going to church every week. I'm giving the offering plate. I serve at the church. And just because I have this one little sin in the corner of my life, that's not going to affect anything. That's not going to mess anything up in, uh, with my life. But the truth is, one little sin can destroy the entire batch of dough. It can spread into your entire life. And so John Owen goes on to say this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. John chapter 10 says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them rich and satisfying life. We usually celebrate the last part of that verse and we ignore the first part of that verse, but let's look at the first part of that verse. That's exactly what sin does. The thief and sin and the world comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what sin will do. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. John Owen was right. And so I can't tell you how many times I've sat down in marriage counseling situations with people and they talk about the blow up, they talk about the big event, they talk about the big problem. And in reality, when we look back and we do the little pathway to the past five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we find out there was this little sin that didn't seem like a big deal and it was hidden and it was secret, but nobody ever took care of it. And so it grew and it ended up poisoning the entire marriage 15 years later. This happens in churches. An entire church can, can become toxic when there's one little sin that goes unaddressed. Paul actually says to the church in Corinth, when they're, when they're not doing anything about a sexual sin, there's a sexual sin in Corinth, and he actually writes in 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the, the whole batch of dough? Entire church can go down because they keep a sin secret. And I know this by experience. I can get hurt. I can hurt relationships. I can hurt in different areas of my life because I think that one little sin isn't going to make a, it's not going to make a big deal. It's not going to be a big problem. And in reality, if we don't take care of it, and if I don't take care of it, I've experienced this, it ends up destroying my entire life. How many of you know that's true? Sin can have that effect. Yeah. And so 
what Mark is trying to say and what Jesus is trying to say is beware of the sin of the Pharisees, beware of the sin of Herod. They both look different, but they're actually the same. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes that fail to see? ears but fail to hear. Do you keep coming to church and never act upon it? It's not in there, but that's what he's saying. Do you keep singing songs and yet it never affects your life? Do you keep hearing sermons and yet it never changes? It never changes you inwardly. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not get it? And what he's saying is, what used to grip you doesn't grip you anymore. What used to excite you doesn't excite you anymore. You've been with me three years now. Feeding 4,000 was nothing. It just went like that to you. You're sitting there saying, I've seen him feed 5,000. Wow, he just fed 4,000. That ain't nothing. He feeds entire cities with Long John Silver combos sometimes. That ain't nothing. If you've seen what I've seen... And that which used to amaze them no longer amazes them. One scholar wrote about this passage, proximity to the work of God not acted upon has brought a desensitizing to the greatness of God. Yeah, sometimes he does that. Sometimes he feeds 4,000 with nothing. I grew up in southern Illinois, and so we grew up St. Louis Cardinal baseball fans, and every year we'd Got something in your throat there, Josh? Is that? Yeah, I, there was a cough going around, so I didn't know. In other words, I grew up a Christian. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we need the Holy Spirit here, guys. Every year, my parents would make sure we get to go to one Cardinal baseball game. Now, I don't know how they did it, because we didn't have any money, uh, but somehow they would scrounge, and back then, tickets, they were, you know, middle class could actually go to professional sporting events back then. But they would scrounge up enough money. We'd sit out in the bleachers, and you know, you know how it goes. But we'd drive into St. Louis, and whenever you drive into St. Louis, there's a, the largest man-made monument in the world, the arch. And when we would drive into St. Louis as kids, inside our station wagon, you remember those? <laughs> we would, wow. And we'd be crossing the Mississippi, that big bridge, and our eyes would never come off that arch. You, you see the top? I see the top. And, and actually, we'd have contests way out in Illinois. Who was the first to see the tip of the arch way out in the distance? I won this time. And, and now Chelsea and I do that. When we go back, it's weird. She's winning, so we stop playing. But anyway, we would have, I mean, it, our eyes, we were just amazed. And then we were growing a little bit older. And, and by the time I was in high school, we lived a little bit closer to St. Louis. We had moved. And so I started going to more Cardinal games. We'd do shopping in St. Louis and events in St. Louis. And guess what happened over time? Over time, we started driving into St. Louis. And there were a few times I was able to drive into St. Louis without even noticing that the arch was there. I didn't even give it a look. What used to amaze me no longer amaze me. What used to grip me no longer grip me. What used to move me no longer move me. Do you know what I'm talking about spiritually here now? This last summer, I went to visit a friend in, in, in Grand Junction, Colorado, and when I flew into Denver, he, he went to come and pick me up, and the second I got out of that airport, guess where my eyes went? The mountains, 
The rock, I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off of them. They're a little bigger than the mountains we have here in Southeast Texas. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm like, wow. I left four days later. We were driving from the west to the east. We had to go all the way through the Rocky Mountains. It was just four days later, and I, I wasn't even looking at them anymore. Four days. I was actually tired of them. Actually, I was tired of the mosquitoes, but that's, that's, another, that's another story. It took four days for me to lose my excitement about that which four days earlier blew my mind away. And that's okay. They're mountains. Who cares? It's the arch. Who cares? But when that happens with Jesus, we better care. When that happens with the mountains, it doesn't matter. When it happens spiritually, it matters. And it affects people and it affects our family. This happens to new, oh, this happens to new believers all the time, or it happens to new church attenders all the time. We see it all the time in ministry. Somebody starts coming and they're here every week. They wouldn't miss for the world. They're on fire. Their heart has been gripped by Jesus and the gospel of Christ and the gospel of grace. And then three months later, eh, I don't see him as much all of a sudden. Now, now we're seeing him three out of four weeks. And then a couple months later, now we're seeing him half the time. And a couple months later, eh, if it's convenient, we'll pop in. And that which just nine months or 12 months earlier, that which blew their minds, what Jesus did for them, one year later, we hardly ever even see him walk foot in the church building. Or people walk forward and they get baptized. You've never seen somebody so on fire for Christ. And they're in tears almost every time they walk into church because what Jesus had done, has done for them has so moved them. And just a couple years later, they have become hard. It doesn't move them at all. Do you know what I'm talking about? Beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Ah, you fed 4,000. Yeah. This must be about the bread. It's not about the bread. You're still talking about the bread? That's what Jesus said. Did you not just see what I did? Yeah, but we've seen you stop storms, so it's, it's you know, whatever. Let me give you one of the most valuable verses. I don't have a life verse. This, if I had a life verse, this might be it. This is critical. Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Can you read that out loud with me? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I'm going to tell you, usually I walk up here and I tell you, don't be like me. <laughs> And I get plenty of examples throughout the sermon why you're like, I don't want to be like him. I'm going to tell you one area where I want you to be like me. I have kept my spiritual fervor for Jesus. I have kept my zeal. And I'm not telling you every Sunday morning when the alarm goes off, I'm excited. When the alarm goes off, sometimes like, oh. And sometimes on Saturday afternoon about 3 p.m., setup is coming this evening another two and a half hours. I'm human. I'm not telling you that doesn't happen, but here's what I am going to tell you. Every Sunday morning at some point, and I'm telling you this, at some point, it clicks in me. Here it comes. I'm going to get a chance to start my week praising God. I'm going to get a chance to start my week opening up the words of life, which is 
gold to our heart. I'm going to get a chance to bless somebody today. I'm going to get a chance to hug somebody today. I'm going to get a chance to pray for somebody today. I'm going to get a chance to proclaim the gospel of grace today. I'm going to get a chance to bless somebody spiritually today. We get to talk about Jesus today. We get to take communion today. I just want you to know I wouldn't miss this for the world. There isn't anything going on out there. Hear me. There isn't anything going on out there that's more important than what's going on in here right now. I don't care what it is. There isn't anything else that excites me more than when somebody in here catches the excitement, catches the fire, or somebody walks down the aisle during the last song and says, hey, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. I want to do that. My friends, there isn't anything better in the world than to be a part of a church where that happens. Amen? There isn't anything out there I want more than what I want in here. And since I was about their age right there, that's when it hit me. I got one life, one chance to make a difference for Jesus. Where can I make the biggest difference? And it's not going through the motions with church. And it's not going through the motions with him. And it's not giving half-heartedly to Christ. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I.e., go all in with Jesus. I'm not saying I do it well. I'm not saying I do it perfect. There's areas where I can grow as a husband, as a father, as a preacher, as a minister, as a man. I get that. But the zeal and the fervor, I'm telling you, some of the things out there make me sick because they're getting in the way of the things in here. And if you think it breaks my heart, it breaks his heart. Who really cares about my heart? He's the one who died. He's the one who started this thing. He's the one who started the church. He's the one who left the grave. There's nobody in that grave. He's God. We're not. Let's serve him. Never. What what does that mean? You want me to go through the Greek on what never means? It means never. Never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. May that be said of each one of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity today. Thank you for this church. Most of all, thank you for your words of wisdom. What we don't need today is human philosophy and human wisdom. We need something spiritual, something supernatural, something that comes from you that's bigger than us. So, Father, in our finite minds, and our finite leadership here, Father, would you give us something that far, far outweighs what we can provide on our own? Thank you for this message that Jesus gave his disciples and the Pharisees. Help us to be humble today and that if there's a, if there's a sin in the corner of our life that we're, eh, we don't think it's a big deal. Thank you for the reminder today that, that it's like leaven. It'll spread and it'll poison our life. Father, thank you for the reminder today that we need to keep our spiritual fervor and may it grow and not just stay the same. May we increase in our excitement. May the things that used to blow us away about the gospel blow us away more here in the end of 2019. Father, where there needs to be repentance this morning, would that happen? May you move our hearts and lean on our souls. May you press on us in a way where we would act. 
May we never become complacent with, with a toxicity in our life and say, yeah, we're doing enough somewhere else. It won't matter. It does matter. Father, thank you for the life of Jesus. If this isn't enough, if what you've given us isn't enough, Father, nothing can be. So where Jesus groans, may we groan. Where he sighs, may we sigh. And where he weeps, may we weep. May we share the heart of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.